Hello, and welcome to episode four of Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb, and this is the Impeachment 2 episode. Uh, So as I'm sure a lot of you know, this week marked the beginning of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial in the Senate. So what we started to see this week was the um, Democrats from the House of Representatives presenting their prosecution of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's defense team starting to lay out their defense of him. So as I'm recording, they're now on day four of the trial, uh, which is when Donald Trump's defense is starting to like fully present their argument. So I won't be talking about their argument as much this week, just because we haven't had, haven't been able to see as much of it. But next week, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. And then I have some very exciting guests for next week. So make sure to tune in. Um, so the first three days of the impeachment trial are officially over with probably, you know, again, there's trial today. There'll probably be, it'll probably go until about mid next week. So what we saw on the first day was basically the defense and the prosecution making their opening statements. Um, and they basically determined whether or not the trial itself was constitutional. And frankly, I'm unsure of why the Senate is now able to determine constitutionality. It's kind of unclear, um, but basically they're just trying to determine whether or not it's actually constitutional for the Senate to vote to convict a public official who is now a private citizen. So as we all know, Donald Trump is now a, a private citizen because he left office. Um, however, he did like commit the crimes that he's being charged, uh, charged for while he was in office. So they're trying to determine whether or not there's a constitutional obligation for um, the Senate to go through with this or whether it's actually a complete violation of the impeachment process. So that's basically what they talked about on the first day. And then at the end of that first day, the full Senate voted uh, and they determined that it was constitutional to go forward with it. It was basically a party line vote with kind of the expected people flipping. Um, And I'm going to make the argument that the final vote at the end of this whole thing is going to look very similar to the vote that we saw um, at the end of the first day where they determined constitutionality. So going through that first day argument, it's actually a really interesting conversation because there's very little precedence um, for this issue. Like there have been a couple elected officials or um, political appointees who have been you have gone through the Senate removal process after they left office. And uh, even when those trials were happening, there was discussions about constitutionality um, and they kind of never really came to like a firm conclusion about whether or not it was constitutional. And so the line remains very blurry today, um, which look, in my personal opinion, the trial should happen. It's important for everyone to see the facts laid out. Um, but in, you know, in some alternate universe, where Trump actually gets convicted, um, I think that there's, you know, there's some iffiness there in terms of like constitutionality, which could result in, you know, various Supreme Court challenges. You know, if again, if he is convicted, which he won't be. Um, but again, I just think that that's a really interesting conversation to have, kind of around the Senate's authority in the situation. Again, not that I think that the the trial shouldn't be happening because it absolutely should. Um, But then again, I just think that this is going to be a really messy time in American politics. And I don't really want it to continue moving forward. I want there to be accountability for his actions. I want us all to kind of move on and move upwards, uh, which again, I don't foresee happening because of the chokeholds that Donald Trump has over the Republican Party. But I hope that, you know, this process will, it won't, It won't because nothing will at this point, but I would hope that this process would induce some healing. Um, But I think that it's just only going to continue to divide the country, unfortunately. But again, my personal opinion regarding whether this whole process is constitutional, as someone who has never taken a constitutional law class, I'm a freshman in college, you know, my word is whatever it is. Um, But I do think that there needs to be some accountability for public officials if they, you know, commit a, quote, high crime or misdemeanor right before they leave office, right? So just because they leave office a week after doing, you know, committing a crime doesn't mean that they shouldn't have political as well as legal accountability, right? So the impeachment trial is a political trial, not a legal one. So 
just because Donald Trump gets convicted by the Senate doesn't mean that he will, you know, go to jail, basically. Um, that's an, an important distinction to make. But, um, you know, if, but like, I always, I've been thinking about Nixon, right? So if, if he, if Watergate was discovered, or he did Watergate a week before he left office in his second term, right? He, he left office, and then Watergate was discovered, but it happened, you know, after, you know, he, the trial was happening after he left office. Does that mean that he shouldn't have been held accountable for the fact that he, you know, committed this really egregious crime? You know, because what Donald Trump's lawyers are arguing is the fact that um, Donald Trump was voted out of office was the accountability for his crime, right? So he um, is now out of office and he's been voted out and therefore, you know, can't be convicted for a crime that he committed while he was the president that's just a very confusing like double think argument to me you know the republicans love to say that things are are orwellian so this seems more orwellian than the things that they say are orwellian um but he committed the crime when he was the president he committed the crime when he was a public official so just because he's no longer a public official because he left office doesn't mean that he shouldn't be held accountable and i think that this argument sets up the president that, oh, okay, well, I'm the president, I am in my lame duck session, so I've got like a month and a half where I have no authority, I'm going to do all of these crimes right before I leave office, and the day I step out of office, I can't be accused of any wrongdoing. Like, that's insane. That's an insane argument to make, um, that public officials can't be held accountable after they leave office. That's the argument that the defense team is making. Um, and honestly, I understand why they're making that argument because there's no other argument to make, right? Like it's especially, you know, I'll talk about this in a couple minutes, but once we get into the um, prosecution by the Democrats, uh, it's just the whole argument is laid out so clearly that there's very little way, you know, unless the Republicans don't have backbones, which they won't, but it's so clear to, I think, the American people, a critical thinking group of people that Donald Trump is directly responsible. And so the only way to kind of weasel himself out of any accountability is to say, oh, well, this trial can't happen at all. So I, I'm happy that a couple of Republicans jumped ship to vote to go on with the trial. Um, and again, like I've said this before, or I'll say it again, this is all basically one big show um, because there's no, nothing's going to happen in the in the long run because the senate which is the greatest you know deliberatory body of our time just completely is you know in a headlock because of partisanship and there's all of these republicans who aren't running for re-election that just need to get a backbone i'll say it once i'll say it a million times um but the fact that they are laying out all these facts and they're showing all this footage and it's just on national television or at least you know not on fox news which i think is so interesting that all of the major networks are showing the impeachment trial except for Fox News. And I haven't checked, but if I had to make an assessment, I'm going to say that Fox News is certainly showing the uh, former president's defense, uh, but did not show the prosecution because, again, the, def the, the, the prosecution is so clear and it's so obvious how the timeline worked out to make Donald Trump just directly implicated in all of these crimes. But anyway, that's that that was so that was the first day of arguments was they both presented their arguments as to the constitutionality behind what they were about to do. The Senate voted, they determined, all right, we're going to go forward with it. And then the next two days um, ha were for the prosecution to lay out their argument. So it was 10 hours each day um, of the House impeachment managers presenting the case. So as a little refresher, if you forget from um, last time this happened, about a year ago, um, basically the House, the Speaker of the House determines a group of people to, a group of uh, Congress people to represent the argument from the House of Representatives in the Senate trial. So they basically serve as the lawyers for the House of Representatives. Um, so this time around, Nancy Pelosi chose Jamie Raskin to serve as the lead prosecutor, Joaquin Castro 
uh, David Cicilline, Madeline Dean, uh, Diana DeGette, Ted Liu, Joe Nagusi, Stacey Plaskett, and Eric Swalwell to serve as the impeachment team. So they basically all took turns over that two-day period presenting the argument. And I did not watch all of it because I am a full-time student and I don't have time to watch people talk for 20 hours, Um, but I watched as much as I could. And it was a really, I thought, a very cohesive argument. Um, It was, parts of it were very hard to watch um, because they really leaned into, I don't want to say the shock factor, but the kind of the shock factor of um, everything that happened that day on January 6th. And they really utilized a lot of um, footage and a lot of, you know, never never before seen footage from that day of security camera footage um, to kind of show how terrifying it was to be in the Capitol that day. And you know, I was talking with some people and they were talking about how, like, you know, the multimedia experience made it a little weird and it, again, kind of felt like a show. And it, there is the argument there that it, like, the, it was a really well-produced show, basically. Um, and again, I thought it made the argument a lot more cohesive because they were able to say, you know, this is what I'm saying. I'm saying that Donald Trump said this and it led to this. But let me show you visually Donald Trump making a speech and when he says we all need to go march to the Capitol, people actually picking up their signs and walking to the Capitol. So that like visualization of what they were saying, I think, really added to the argument. And again, in comparison to, um, you know, the first impeachment trial, this whole process, like the whole um crime that Donald Trump is being accused of is a lot more clear in terms of it's visually much more obvious what he did and what he's being accused of where a year ago we were all learning what a quid pro quo was and we were trying to determine like these really intricate foreign policy stories uh, where this is visually we all watched it on our TVs or on our uh, computers when it was happening. So that makes the whole experience very different watching it because the uh, impeachment managers are able to really lay out the entire story very clearly. And as I've said before, um, the this whole thing is for the American people. It's not for the Senate, really. It is to try to show the American people what the Republican Party has become um, and to prove that you know, they are not a party that really represents the, the the beliefs of the American people. And hopefully it's just a way to, to scare people away from what the Republican Party has become. So come the midterms in, you know, two years, basically, uh, there will be a lot more momentum around removing people from office who helped to perpetrate these crimes. Um, so first two days, very interesting. A lot of video proof, um, a lot of citing Donald Trump's actual speeches. So the main argument, again, itself is very clear. So Donald Trump, they're basically saying that Donald Trump throughout his um, campaign and throughout the last part of his presidency, he perpetrated the big lie by lying about the election and about whether or not um, the election was rigged, right? So he knew you know, after, especially after COVID, that his support was really going down. He, you know, knew that his chances of winning legitimately uh, were dwindling. Uh, so instead of changing his campaign strategy or just, you know, doing a better job at handling COVID on a federal scale, he instead started to call into question the very framework of the election. So he consistently said that, you know, if he lost, there was no way to lose. And he was actually, you know, the only way he would lose if the the election was stolen from him, it was ripped out of his hands. Um, And, you know, he said repeatedly in the debates that um, he would not concede the election or, you know, he'd have to wait and see and make sure it was fair. uh, Instead of just saying, yes, if I lose the election, I will concede, Um, which is the appropriate reaction. You have to concede if you're a loser. That's just the way it works. Um, But again, he called into question all these institutions over and over again that basically the impeachment managers are arguing that um, 
from the beginning of him calling into question these institutions, he was laying the framework for violence of this kind to spark up um, later. Kind of a side point from this, but again, all connected, is that I kind of, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but Donald Trump calling into question all of these institutions is so bad on so many levels. Um, Because you know, we need participants in a democracy. That's the way that democracy works. And I talk a lot about consequences um, in terms of this impeachment process. You know, he should be impeached. There's, or he was impeached, but he should be, you know, quote unquote, removed from office. He should face consequences for his actions. And one of the, one of his actions was calling into question the major institutions that, you know, make American democracy. Without voting, without participation, we no longer really have a country. That's very frustrating to me. Um, And we know that there's a large percentage of the population that still believes that the election was stolen. They still believe that Donald Trump should be the president right now. And now we're calling into question all of the actions made by the Biden administration. And there's very little, you know, from one side of the, the, the country at least, there is very little legitimacy to that election. And if we're going forward now with every single election being illegitimate, I just, you know, I fear where our country is going and the state of the institutions. And again, I have, I mentioned this before, people will fight with me on this. I think that our institutions generally are okay. You know, obviously there's things that are wrong with them, that things that need to be fixed, but I think that the principles that are there are good principles. And it's the people that inhabit them that are the ones that are broken So I just, I really believe that, you know, again, there needs to be accountability for his actions so that we can move forward, we can have safe, fair elections, um, and this whole, you know, this whole really bad part of American history can kind of move on and we can recover from it. But that's a side note from all of this, just important to mention that voting is safe, voting is secure, go out and vote. It's important to maintaining the health of our democracy. Anyway, the main argument that was made throughout the two days that the Democrats were speaking was basically tying Donald Trump's January 6th speech to the actions of the rioters. So, um, you know, I'm ad-libbing here, but basically they played the clip where Trump says, you know, we all need to march down Pennsylvania Avenue together and support the Republicans who, you know, are going to do what's right. Let's hope that Mike Pence does, you know, does the right thing. And then the other clip where he says, you know, again, I'm just completely, I don't know, the, I don't have the exact quotes in front of me, but basically where he says, you know, we need to show strength that if we don't show strength, we're going to lose our country. Um, and they, the, the Democrats intersperse those quotes with literal proof of, Again, video proof of uh, people watching him say that, watching him say, we're going to march down Pennsylvania Avenue, we're going to show strength, we're going to take our country back, and then saying, let's go, we need to take the Capitol, you know? And then there was the other, later that day, when Mike Pence did not do anything to stop the certification of the election, Donald Trump tweeted very incend- you know, a very incendiary tweet where he basically calls Mike Pence a coward, and... Uh, you there's video proof of rioters at the Capitol reading that tweet from a through a bullhorn to the entire crowd saying Mike Pence is a coward, and then you intersperse that with five minutes later of the the rioters building a noose outside of Congress with Pence's name on it, you know, or shouting "Hang Mike Pence!" Like there is literal proof of Donald Trump's tweets and words to the actions of the rioters. And that was the main through line of the Democrats' argument. So, again, this was very difficult to watch. And they started out the entire argument with a 13-minute video that was basically all footage from the riots, showing, you know, all the the, the breaking windows and all of the violence um, committed against, you know, members of the, the Capitol Police Force And it was incredibly chilling to watch. Again, I didn't watch it live because I had class, but I watched it later that night. And I really had to, like, step away from it after I finished watching it. It was extremely, extremely difficult to watch. Um, 
because I think that the the violence that was perpetrated at the Capitol that day, we still only know the very top layer of it. There was so much more there. And, you know, we saw, you know, later in the argument, they showed footage of Officer Goodman, who led the rioters away from the Senate chamber while the entire Senate was still assembled there. And, you know, they showed this, you know, again, never before seen footage where um, Mitt Romney was literally right around the corner from the rioters. And Officer Goodman saw him and said, no, you need to go the other way. You need to get somewhere safe. Mitt Romney was minutes away from getting attacked by these rioters. And I mean, it's it's scary to think about because you know that Mitt Romney is the kind of the one Republican who's ever or the one Republican senator who's ever really spoken out strongly against Trump. He's probably a major target for these people. And that was very scary. Um, And I think, you know, obviously Donald Trump is very much at fault for all of this. But I think that there's other Republican members of the Republican Party who are also guilty. You know, I spoke last week a lot about Marjorie Taylor Greene and about her consistent threats to, you know, basically, you know, encourage the assassination of high-level Republican officials. And then we saw in the footage from January 6th, you know, rioters echoing the exact same things that she has tweeted and she's said in videos before. So it's just this culture of, like, violence and hatred and, like, bigotry <laughs> against, against basically, like, the American people. So, again, hard to watch because I think you know, we were we were potentially minutes away from, you know, a mass murder situation, which, you know, I say with a laugh in my voice, but it's just to cover up the fact that that's terrifying. That's a truly terrifying thing to think about because, you know, again, it's this, I just, I can't even really process how terrifying that situation must have been for them and Watching from the outside, it was scary to watch, but now that we're getting all of this information about the fact that people knew that it was going to be dangerous and that they didn't call up the National Guard in preparation for it, um, and the fact that when the people that organized the rally were filling out the paperwork, when they were asked if there was any chance that there was going to be any kind of violence associated with the event, they said that the only possible violence is from people who uh, don't support Donald Trump and don't support Republicans. Meanwhile, you know, the people who committed those acts of violence, the biggest acts of violence that we've seen in a year of really uh, intense protest and intense, you know, displeasure with the government, the people that committed the worst crimes were those Republicans. So to be honest, all of this footage really seems like a smoking gun to me in terms of The fact that he clearly did it, he clearly, you know, sparked this flame in people that caused them to say, oh yes, I need to now go to the Capitol and make my voice heard. And if they're not going to hear me, then I'm going to break in and I'm going to make them listen. That's really scary. Um, The other piece of footage that they showed, which was very just really horrifying um was video of an officer getting literally crushed by a door um at the capitol and again like it was something that i watched and i just had to turn my computer off and like walk away because it was so difficult to watch and i just don't know what else to say about things like this it's just an egregious i don't know lack of remorse for human life I, again, I, I feel like I'm being extremely unarticulate about this, but I think it's just because I, in my 19 years of life, which I recognize is not very many, and I haven't had all that many experiences, but it was a terrifying display of violence and a terrifying display of what this group of people stands for, is that they only support police when they are, you know, murdering black people rather than you know, when the police are doing their jobs, it's a good thing, you know, the the police are supposed to protect the capital, and I don't know, I just think that there needs, to, again, there needs to be accountability for who sowed the seeds for all of this violence, and I think that's really what the Democrats tried to show, um, and again, they did it in 20 hours, and they repeated many times the 
the, the impact that this had on various groups of people. So they talked about politicians. They talked about staffers. And, you know, I'm a 19-year-old going to school in Washington, D.C. I'm currently applying for a lot of political internships. Um, and the idea that, like, some of my friends might have been in the Capitol that day. They weren't, luckily, but... Um, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends have Hilternships and the fact that they could have been in the Capitol building when something like that was happening. You know, a 19, 20 year old unpaid intern who is just there trying to, you know, learn and help foster democracy because they really care about it could have been directly in the line of fire. And then that's on top of all of the custodial workers and all of the different people who um are in the Capitol because they work there. You know, again, that's there. there's a really interesting divide within D.C. of people who have lived there their entire lives and their families have lived there their entire lives, and then there's the politics of it all. Um, and there's Capitol Hill. And, you know, all of these people are coming in and they're disrupting regular people who live in D.C. And a lot, you know, the, cust- the custodial staff and people who just work in the Capitol building who have no politics, who are directly in the line of fire. It's just really hard to stomach and hard to watch um, and hard to think about that they, these people were so, so filled with lies and misinformation that they were driven to put innocent people at risk. And that's pretty frustrating to me. The other really, really horrifying aftermath of all of this that they, the, Democrats talked about, and then there's also been a lot more news coming out about it over the past couple days, is the fact that there have been several officers, several police officers who are present at the um, riot who have been committing suicide, you know, possibly in relation to kind of what happened that day. And I just think that this, first of all, it's just, it's so, so upsetting that they felt the need to end their lives on top of the fact that I think that there's there's going to be a really strong aftershock after all of this. I think, you know, being locked down for a year on top of this extremely vitriolic election, on top of this riot, on top of everything else that's happened over the last year, that I think that the kind of the trauma that we've all endured is really going to come back and make us all go through a kind of national reckoning altogether um, in a couple of years. And, you know, because I do, I think that we've experienced a couple extremely traumatic situations and we haven't had the time to process it because by the time we process one thing, another insane thing happens. So that's my little side note, just saying that um, therapy needs to be free and we all need it because... There's just been so much going on that I don't think that we've had the chance to process. Um, And it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the political side effects of this all are. We're only, you know, a month and a half away from it. Um, So, yeah, what the political side effects are and then what the emotional and, you know, social side effects of all this will be as well. So um, I'm not going to go through everything that the Democrats said, because again, it was 20 hours of an argument. Um, (laughs) But that was the main, those were the main ideas that the Democrats talked about. Um, Now moving forward, we, I just, I personally, I don't know how Republicans will look themselves in the mirror if they vote to acquit Donald Trump, but they will, you know, because that's, as I said before, the Republican Party is in a chokehold by Donald Trump, who, again, is now a private citizen, so I don't understand why he continues to have this much authority over the party and over what the party does. But, you know, a lot of the Republicans are going to maintain that this whole process is unconstitutional. And, you know, yesterday, I was so sickened by it. The fact that 15 GOP senators did not even show up to the trial. And if you'll remember from all of the lessons we got in impeachment trials last year, that's illegal. Like, you have, if you're a senator, you are, like, constitutionally obligated to show up to the um, impeachment proceedings. And the fact that they didn't, it just shows, again, this, like, egregious disrespect for human life, for the Constitution, for, 
you know, the institutions that are, that founded American democracy. And yeah, so 15 GOP senators don't show up and the rest of them aren't paying attention. They're listening to music, they're drawing, they're doodling. You know, if you want to be a senator, you have to do your job. And if you're going to pretend that the Senate is some great deliberative body, you need to actually be present and be aware of what's going on. And you can't just make predetermined decisions about every single vote based on party line. You know, you need to listen to the argument. You need to have a backbone, a backbone. And I'm so sorry for saying backbone a million times in this episode, but I just, I truly will never understand the cowardice of the Republican Party and the cowardice of specifically the senators in the Republican Party um, who just will never be able to move away from the vitriol and the disgusting behavior of the Trump administration. And it's, I don't, yeah, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. But I'm sure, again, you know, the the uh, Republicans are making their defense today, and I'm sure every GOP senator will show up to that. And I'm sure every Democratic senator will show up to that. And I'm not even close to saying that the Democratic Party is a perfect institution, because it is not. I'm also not saying that every Democratic senator is a perfect person or a perfect politician, because they're not, you know? not No politician is perfect. No politician makes no bad decisions. Um, and especially with the Senate, they're there for a million, a million years. So, you know, people make bad decisions. People do the wrong thing. People are dismissive and rude, especially in politics. But I, I, do, I do believe that there is a, a different level of, of respect and dignity between the two parties. So that's just what I'll say there on that. So again, I'm not going to get into the defense's argument all that much because I haven't heard most of it, but basically what they're going to try to argue is that A, it was st- it's still unconstitutional for this entire process to be happening, um, and then B, that the rioters were operating without incentive from the president. So they're trying to, you know, as much as they can split the actions of the rioters from the actions of the president, which is going to be hard to do, um, and they kind of don't have a great argument there, um, because, again, the Democrats laid out pretty succinctly the fact that Donald Trump said, go march on the Capitol and don't show any weakness, and they said, okay, we're going to go march on the Capitol and not show any weakness, and especially the fact that there have been several rioters who have come out and said, yeah, we did this because of the president. So, again, I'm not, I'm not really sure what you know, how much that argument is going to hold up. So I do think that they're going to mostly argue on based on constitutionality. And that's how they're going to make their their argument work. Um, But again, there's there's very little argument there because they already determined that it was constitutional. And that's why they're going forward with the process. And they have very little argument in terms of um, why Donald Trump is innocent rather than just, oh, it's unconstitutional, we shouldn't even be talking about it. So it'll be interesting to see what they do for the next two days. And, you know, I I, I don't think that they have any argument, but it'll be, hopefully they do pull out something, right? They do say they have some kind of cohesive argument to talk about, Um you know, because then the other 90% of the Republicans are going to vote to acquit. And there's going to be no argument from the trial that is going to help them like defend their decision. And not that I want them to be able to defend their decisions, because again, I don't think that it's a defensible position. But just hope that they come up with something, something um, to argue here. Otherwise, it'll just, I don't even know why I'm saying this, because I, I don't think that there is any defense, and I don't think that the Republicans should be able to get away with it. But if the defense continues just saying, oh, it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional, I will be very frustrated, personally, because that's already an issue that's been technically resolved by the Senate. 
So anyway, after the defense lays out their argument for two days, so again, 10 hours for two days, uh, there will be a day of questioning. So the senators will be able to write questions uh, to either group, and then the um, impeachment managers and the defense team will answer those questions. Um, And I think that's a day. I could be wrong about that. And then after that, um, they will go into voting. Um, So the voting will probably end up happening mid-next week. But... Unless something crazy happens, as I've said repeatedly throughout this episode, nothing's going to happen. It's going to be same old, same old. It's going to be pretty much a party line vote. Um, They need a two-thirds majority in order to convict. They are not going to get it. Um, If I had to make a guess, I would say that there will be like three Republicans who will jump ship. Um, More likely, it'll just be Mitt Romney again, Um, and this time it'll be 51-49. And that's frustrating to me for reasons that I've laid out. I just, there needs to be consequences for your actions. There needs to be. And we, you know, there's been this this conversation throughout the Trump administration of someone just saying whatever they want, doing whatever they want, and getting away with all of it. That's not the way we should live our lives. You know, how do we expect anyone to behave in a way that is beneficial for the community at large if we're looking at the, you know, the person in the highest position in the land and looking at them making and doing things that are just destructive to community and to democracy and to decency and just him getting away with it over and over and over again. And I don't care if he's a private citizen right now. He committed all these crimes while he was in office. He needs to be held accountable for those actions because I think that anyone who does something wrong should be held accountable for their actions. If I do something wrong, I should be held accountable for my actions. That's the way the world works. You reap what you sow. And Donald Trump sowed the seed of discontentment, of violence that turned into the death of several law enforcement officials, several of his supporters, and He needs to be held accountable for that. So that's where I'm going to stop talking about impeachment because, you know, it's all anyone's talking about. If you turn on your TV, you can hear people on CNN talking about it too. Um, So again, that's where I'm going to stop. We will see where the trial ends up. Uh, I'll probably talk about it a little bit next week again, but mostly I'm just going to kind of let it go because I think I said all that needs to be said regarding the whole process. But anyway, a couple other important stories from the week that I want to talk about. First off, vaccine distribution, the most exciting story of the week, kind of, um, is that we have now officially purchased enough vaccines for everyone in America. So I'm so excited to get vaccinated. I can't wait. Um, So yeah, this was just announced the other day that we now officially have purchased enough vaccines for everyone. Um, I'm not sure if that means that like all the vaccines have been produced or all the vaccines are like, you know, in warehouses somewhere, but we do know that they're coming. Um, and I think they purchased like half from Moderna and half from Pfizer. Um, so I, that doesn't really matter, but it's just, you know, they're pulling from both. Um, and again, Joe Biden inherited a vaccine distribution plan that was basically non-existent which is, you know, something that's frustrating is uh, the fact that there was very little organizational infrastructure there for vaccine distribution, but it's starting to speed up a lot more now. I think I, think I saw that like one in 10 have now been vaccinated fully, which is very exciting. Um, and we're starting to see vaccine distribution pick up a lot faster. And the other exciting thing on this is that Dr. Fauci said uh, in a statement earlier in the week that, quote unquote, open season on vaccines is going to happen around April. Um, So basically what that means is that anyone who wants to get a vaccine who's not part of a high risk group uh, will be eligible to get the vaccine. So if we're starting to get if like the vast majority of the population is starting to get vaccinated around April, hopefully. What that hopefully means is that we can have some semblance of a normal summer. And that would be so great. Um, I just really want to have a fun summer. And I really want to 
go to college in the fall and go live in a dorm. It's all I want. Um, Maybe I'm being too optimistic about the state of vaccine distribution, but my fingers are crossed um, that it all starts to speed up and all of the hurdles get overcome quickly. Um, and I think the fact that they're, they kind of started slow with vaccine distribution just for um, like high-risk groups, old people, people with pre-existing conditions, I think that was a good thing. First of all, because again, they were the high-risk groups who needed the vaccine more than like me, for example. Um, I think that it was that now that they're starting to really figure out all of those different hurdles towards you know, how to make vaccine distribution more efficient, by the time we have this like mass population coming to get vac- vaccinated in the spring and the summer, um, it'll all get a lot faster and it'll be more efficient once they have like so many people, you know, lined up around the corner to get vaccinated. So, you know, they're working on the process. They're getting everything done. We have the vaccines. We have the framework. We're, we're What's happening, guys? It's all happening. I'm so excited. Um, so that's a good part of COVID. I'm excited for all of that. The one not so great story about COVID is that there's been so many stories that have been coming out over the past um, couple of weeks about mismanagement of COVID um, and Cuomo in New York um, and his like mismanagement of the nursing homes uh, towards the beginning of COVID. There's this whole article that came out in the New York Times about it very upsetting to read um and the fact that Cuomo is is writing a book about how great he was at at solving COVID in New York um and all of these stories are coming out of, about him not the greatest in the world and again if you think I'm one-sided look at me saying something bad about a Democrat um so I think the mismanagement in terms of COVID and all these stories are coming out is very upsetting and I think all the time about all the movies and books and things that are going to get written about this time in a couple years, um, which hopefully they take a little bit longer than a few years because I don't think anyone want to relive this now. If you are a theater person and you're writing a play about COVID right now while listening to this podcast, don't do it. Please don't do it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but I yeah, I don't know how... Um, Andrew Cuomo is going to go down in history in terms of his uh, vaccine or his COVID management um, processes. But I suppose only we can only tell in hindsight. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because there is a silver lining to all of this. You know, we're all stuck in our houses, um, you know, kind of been living the same Twilight Zone day since almost a full year ago. We're coming up on our kind of one year anniversary of lockdown. Um but I think that there is, you know, there's sun on the horizon. It's coming. So I'm just excited for that. Next thing I want to talk about is the stimulus package, which has been kind of buried underneath all of the conversation about the impeachment trial and everything else, all the other crazy political stories that have been happening. But, you know, the Senate passed this huge stimulus package a couple weeks ago, um, and now it's in the House, and the House is reviewing it and making their additions. And, you know, how a bill becomes a law, we all know this. I don't have to go through it. Um, and if you don't, just look up the Schoolhouse Rock song. Whatever. Um, but basically, the House is working on making some additions to the bill, um, and they are really not pulling any punches Like, they are just pushing for, like, everything to be included in this bill, um, including $15 minimum wage and, like, much larger benefits for families. We don't know how much of this is actually going to manage to get through the conference committee. Um, But the one thing that I want in the stimulus package is stimulus for adult dependents. I am an adult dependent. Most of my friends are adult dependents. You know, we're college students. And... Previous stimulus packages have not included money for us. Um, And I just I just want us to be included. I want us to be represented. All right. And this is why we need a youth delegate in politics to represent us specifically and represent under 18s. Um, This is another maybe maybe I'll talk about this in another episode about youth representation in politics. But uh, yeah, so. 
many college students trying to pay off student loans, trying to, you know, afford to eat at school while being a full-time student. Uh, And I just really think that that's a really important component of the stimulus that's been talked about a lot in, you know, the college student politics circles, but not so much outside of it. Um, So I'm excited to see you know, how that conversation develops. Um, And we won't see a full stimulus package uh, for a while, but it is going to be big. It's going to be really expensive, and it's going to be interesting to see what the whole debate turns out um, being. So just wanted to mention that because it's also on the horizon, and it's probably, you know, once the impeachment trial is over, it's going to come back into the forefront and be kind of the main story for a while. So I think it's important to be paying attention to how all of that is developing. So that's that on that. Finally, the last thing I want to talk about this week. It's my insane political story for the week that really drove me up the wall. And guys, we're going to talk about pillows. We're talking about pillows. So if you do not know, or you're not on Twitter, don't get on Twitter. It's not worth it. Don't do it. Um, But if you are on Twitter, and if you're on my side of Twitter, you have already seen this whole thing play out. But basically, um, Mike Lindell is the founder of MyPillow, which is a pillow company that created this pillow that's supposedly, like, much better than regular pillows, and it does all these great things. The, 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 The actual conversation behind my pillow doesn't matter. The point is that Mike Lindell is a huge Trump supporter. He's a huge Republican. He's been on, you know, all of the conservative news networks um, spreading Donald Trump's big lie about the election. Um, and just generally, people don't like him very much. Um, my pillow itself is basically dying. They're like millions of dollars in debt because of legal fees, um, because they claimed that my pillow could like solve cerebral palsy and it just can't. Um, so my pillow itself is fading into oblivion, but Mike Lindell himself has been kind of out and about. So David Hogg, who is a survivor of the Parkland shooting, um, has taken a lot of offense with Mike Lindell and MyPillow, and he said, I want to create a pillow company that can directly compete with MyPillow. And so he did that, and he has this pillow company now called Good Pillow um, that he started with another young person, I think his name is William Legate, and they basically just created a pillow, um, a pillow company that they have like all of these pre-signups for, they haven't really announced much about it, but, you know, they did it, and... People lost their minds, lost their minds, basically saying that David Hogg is a grifter and that he's using his like trauma for to make money and that, you know, he's betraying the March for Our Lives cause and a lot of other like school shooting survivors have like come out against him. Um, And in my opinion, everyone's wrong. Everyone in this entire situation is wrong. And here's why. Number one, David Hogg does not have to be an activist for the rest of his life. Just because he has a platform because of his activism doesn't mean that he's not allowed to create another company. He can be an activist and an entrepreneur. He's not saying that his pillow company is like a direct result of March for Our Lives. He's not saying, oh, Good Pillow is sponsored by March for Our Lives or other way around. They're two separate ventures, and he's allowed to do two separate things. Um, And pigeonholing someone into um, the trauma that they experienced when they were like 17 years old and saying that that's the only thing that he can do for the rest of his life is extremely upsetting. Just imagine, imagine if you were pigeonholed into the one thing that you were doing when you were 17 years old. That's an insane thing to say. Um, And I think that the way that people reacted on Twitter was so insane. I can't even get into all of it because it'll make me start sweating. It'll make me so angry. But anyway, so people are wrong for saying that David Hogg is a grifter or is a bad person for starting a company. He's not a bad person for starting a company. However, the pillow company is a bad idea. And I'm sorry to say it. 
As I said, my pillow was already fading into oblivion. No one talks about my pillow. No one needs a my pillow. Um, and so to create a company that is just going to try to like fill the specific niche and compete directly against my pillow it's just not it's not an important product to put on the market and i don't understand like why that was the specific product he decided to make however like all all the more power to him it's okay i just am frustrated about the fact that david hogg has been i mean i think that he probably decided to do it willingly but he like left his board position on the march for our lives organization because of all of this um, and it's frustrating for me to see how much, like, vitriol there was around this experience, and he just wanted to start a company. And if if he had said, this is a new branch of March for Our Lives, it's a pillow company, I would have been like, hey, that's insane, you can't do that. But he created a separate company with separate people who are not even involved in the March for Our Lives movement, and people just lost their minds. Um... My last point on this is that, you know, we were all joking about No Nuance November in November, but it was a joke. The whole point of No Nuance November was the fact that we need nuance in conversations. It's important to have nuance in conversations. Political issues necessarily involve nuance, and I just, every single story I see these days is just people forgetting that No Nuance November ended in November. It's February, everyone. We need to move on. We need to have real conversations about real things and know that people are multi-layered and issues are multi-layered. And if we continue to ignore that, we are going to be in a bad, bad place in terms of discourse for the rest of our lives. And we should all just delete Twitter but I'm not going to do it. I will not delete Twitter. I'm way too addicted to that platform. But with that and that little lovely rant about Twitter discourse, um, that is it for episode four of Sheep Thrills. Thank you guys very much for listening, and I hope that you all have a great weekend, and I will see you next week with some exciting guests. All right, bye. Have a good week.